All right, good evening, everybody. Welcome. We're glad you're here. We're in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. We're continuing to move through what has been called by many the great hall of faith. Why is it called that? Well, it is a record of faces and names, in our case, names, because we don't know faces, that lived a life of faith through all kinds of different circumstances. The reason that this is important is the Hebrew, this little Hebrew church that we've been learning about, has been going through some real difficulty, and they need endurance, and they need some maybe human examples to keep on uh, moving through and pressing on, and so that's what they're going to get. The first one that we looked at last week was Abel. Abel offered a better sacrifice than his brother Cain, and we asked the question that many have asked before, what was the difference between the two sacrifices? One came from the crops, one came from animals. Uh, Was it an animal sacrifice that made Abel's superior? Not necessarily, because giving from your crops was also an acceptable sacrifice, and it had to do with what both men were involved in. But we talked about that the better sacrifice was the one given by faith, and we drew a parallel between the new and the old covenant. The new covenant is a better sacrifice. It's a superior sacrifice. It's a once for all sacrifice. And we also drew, and we were kind of looking a little bit underneath the text, if you will, that it showed two brothers at odds with one another, one with an inferior sacrifice, one with a superior sacrifice. And Cain killed his brother Abel. And the Hebrew church is going through their own persecution right now, and much of the threat is coming from their own people. For example, Saul of Tarsus, who becomes Paul, before his conversion was a chief persecutor of the church. You could say brother against brother. And so that may be one way to understand some of the language here as it relates to Abel. Abel is the first face or name in the hall of faith, but we'll have more before us. And we're only going to look at three verses tonight. Why don't you stand if you're able to stand with us as we read together five through seven of Hebrews 11. Then we'll pray and get into it. Hebrews 11, five. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. He was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. That's our title tonight, pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen. And we've already seen the definition of faith as that which you know we trust and that which we have not yet seen. In reverence, Noah in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. You can have a seat. Father, thank you for... This study tonight is we will look at a text uh, all about being pleasing to God. And we think about Abel and we think about Enoch and Noah and others that we're going to learn about in the weeks to come. And we can see here tonight two men who stood against the tide of their generation. We think of Enoch who walked with God. We think of Noah 
who was really a sole voice, only he and his family got on that ark. The earth and the thoughts and the intents of men were only evil continually and against the onslaught of moral decay and chaos. Both Enoch and Noah stood their ground. And this is the message that this little Hebrew church needed to hear. And this is the message we need to hear in our generation. As we watch things slide down a slippery slope, we see the moral confusion and chaos in our world. We see many, even in the church, moving away from some of the most fundamental things we probably never could imagine people would walk away from. And yet we know there is a remnant. We know there's many committed believers And we are called to be like Enoch tonight, to be like Noah tonight, and to take our stand. Help us, Father, because we sometimes feel like we're so inadequate and so ill-equipped to do just that. Sometimes we feel like we're even waffling, so how can we stand? Make us stand, O Lord. You are able to keep us from stumbling, the book of Jude says. Help us tonight. Fill us up. Give us endurance. Give us Uh, resolve whatever we may need, Lord. You know every heart. So would you impart that encouragement and that strength? In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. By faith, Enoch, verse 5, Hebrews 11, was taken up so that he should not see death. He was not found. That implies that people were looking for him. You can imagine if you were taken up, (laughs) all of a sudden (laughs) you left planet Earth, as it were, people might be looking for you. You would hope that someone might be looking for you, right? And God took him up for he obtained the witness. This is a variation of the same word we saw in 11.2 and 11.4, the idea of the martus. He obtained a testimony that before his being taken up, what was he? He was pleasing to God. Like Abel before him, Enoch gained a testimony too. Now we learned about Abel that though he is dead, he is still speaking. Remember that? And I told you the story about J. Vernon McGee who died, I think, in the 1980s and said, play the tapes until the money runs out. And J. Vernon McGee's message is being heard all over the world, jumping on the Bible bus, as it were. And people give and people are writing letters from all over the world. This little, what we might call country preacher, who actually had a church in Pasadena, uh, really faithful just, just to teach simply through the Bible, and hungry souls all over the world. And Jay Vernon's been you know, with the Lord for several decades now, but the message still goes forth, and he is still, if you will, preaching and teaching. That is the idea of the name here. The name Enoch means teaching, or commencement. Some say it means initiated or dedicated. Philo explained the name Enoch as meaning recipient of the grace of God. What does Enoch's faith teach us? What does his dedicated life and witness reveal to you and me? What would it say to the original Hebrew recipients of this letter? And why would the writer bring up Enoch at a time when he knew that they were going through certain things as well? Well, you can see that Enoch's witness is at the very end. The testimony of his life is that he lived a life that was pleasing to God. 
Now, that's not the only thing that you and I should concentrate on. We, we want to love God. We want to walk with God. We want to learn how to commune with him and be intimate with him. But if you wanted one good aim for your life, one biblical aim that you should never forget is that your life, my life, should be pleasing to God. If you live a life where you are trying to be pleasing to man, I heard a quote, it's a great quote. I heard it from a pastor's conference earlier today. And the quote is this. If you marry the spirit of the age, you will be a constant widower. The spirit of the age, the zeitgeist, as it were, is always a moving target. Have you noticed? The winds of the world blow here and there, to and fro, and if you try to keep up with it, you will be left behind. If you marry the spirit of the age, you will be a widower. But if you live a life that is pleasing to God, you will know what you're about, what your goals are, where you're headed, and you will even leave a testimony behind. And the first three witnesses in the great hall of faith, one was killed by his brother, and so I think the writer implicitly is saying, yes, martyrdom is a very real possibility. There's, there's a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs, and 11 of the 12 apostles died a martyr's death. Many early Christians were killed. And in the last 100 years, there's been more martyrs in the world worldwide, because remember, Christianity is spread out to about, what, 2 billion confessing Christians today? There's been more martyrs in the last 100 years than all the previous centuries combined. So martyrdom is not just relegated to the first century, brethren. It's been a very real issue. It's a real issue right now in India. It's a real issue right now in China, Africa, and many other places where our brothers and sisters often pay the ultimate price for their faith. So Abel died by the hand of his brother because he had a superior sacrifice. Enoch was taken out by God, and we'll talk a little bit about that. That's kind of a radical thing, right? We only know of a few people where that happened, Enoch and Elijah, namely. And then we're gonna have a Noah. And Noah preached and preached and preached some more, lived a long life, and got on an ark, and God preserved him through a flood, but did not remove him from the earth. Can you see the three Different pictures, one is martyred, uh, another one is taken up, and another one is preserved. And I think the writer implicitly implied in the text is saying this, yes, there's going to be variations of endings in terms of your human life. We all get a certain amount of time, whether you get 80 years, you lived your year 100, some people live maybe, you know, until they're 110. They're the unique cases, right? But no matter what your ending is, the question is, what is your testimony? Enoch's testimony was that he was pleasing to God. When it's all said and done, do you know you're going to have an epitaph too? There's going to be something that captures your life. And the question I have for you is, what would it be? What would it be right now if someone said, yes, I know so-and-so very well, and this phrase captures them? They were what? Well, for Enoch, Enoch was pleasing to God. And there are many scriptures that I could share with you, but let me just share a few. Psalm 19, 14 says this. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, my rock 
and my Redeemer. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Don't be conformed to this world or the pattern of this world, but be transformed by what? By the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Ephesians 5, 8 through 10 puts it this way. You were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Ephesians 5, 8 through 10. Colossians 1, 10 and 11 puts it this way. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you might have great endurance and patience joyfully. Many, many scriptures. The book of Hebrews actually ends with a great um, prayer. Let's turn all the way to Hebrews 13. Look at the last couple of verses, just actually a little bit before the book ends. It ends with this beautiful benediction. You might want to mark this. This has become one of my life verses. Now the God, Hebrews 13, 20, of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. Lots of verses I could give you, but I think you get the message, don't you? I get it. God wants me to live a life pleasing to him. That needs to be my aim. I walk by faith and not by sight, and I make it my aim in 2 Corinthians 5, whether absent or at home, to be pleasing to him. My goal is to please my master. That really simplifies my life. And I think it probably does for you too. And I know you're all trying to learn, as Ephesians 5.10 put it, what pleases him. And that can be a process because we don't know everything, especially when we're newer Christians. But we stay in the word and we keep walking. And that's what Enoch did. And to give you some hope, I want you to know that there was a turning point in Enoch's life. The record of his life is in Genesis 5. Let's turn there together. We'll come back. This is why we're only doing a few verses tonight. We're going to turn to a few passages that give us the backstory. In the case of Enoch, the record of his life is in a small little section in the book of Genesis. If you're having trouble finding the book, we do have help available. We can talk after. <laughs> Never mind. Now, I want you to see something about Enoch's life. And there's some really long lifespans uh, in the early chapters of Genesis, and then they kind of level out. But let's look at uh, verse 19, Genesis 5. Then Jared lived 800 years after he had become the father of Enoch, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Enoch, now here's our, our guy in the hall of faith, lived 65 years, qualified for social security, and then he became the father of who? Methuselah. 
Now note this. Then Enoch walked with God. Now most scholars would say that language tells us that Enoch in the first 65 years of his life, and of course these are elongated lifespans prior to the flood, uh, lived 65 years, it would appear, without walking with God. Then something happened in his life. It says, then, so he lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. We'll come back to him in a second. Then, keyword, Enoch, verse 22, walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah. Notice the repetition of the then and the after. And he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God. We've seen that twice now in verse 22 and 24. He walked with God. And he was not, for God took him. Now, Genesis 5.22 suggests that the event that changed Enoch's life was the birth of Methuselah, the birth of a son. And recently we recorded a little um, Walk in Truth episode. We're airing the Song of Solomon on Walk in Truth on our radio broadcast. And I think it's really important teaching because we're dealing with marriage and we're dealing with romance and intimacy and moving through conflict and learning how to dance again. These were some of the titles of the messages that we did. And we did a little conversation up here on this platform with Pastor Shane, myself, and two uh, wonderful sisters that are part of the fellowship. And we talked a little bit about marriage and intimacy. And it was a real, I would call it a real authentic, um, transparent conversation about the uh, challenges that we all face as human beings in these areas of life. And we all come from at least some of us come from a good amount of brokenness. But I, but I said in that, in that recording that really something that changed the trajectory of my walk with the Lord was the birth of Shane. Shane being my oldest son and going to be 30 this year. And the reason that that event changed my life was I was a newer Christian way back then. Shane was born in the early 90s. And I had, I had gotten saved in the late 80s, but I would have to confess, and I wrote this in the book Suit Up, if you wrote, read that book, that I was struggling the first four years of my walk with the Lord. And you know, I, I knew what was right, and I wanted to do the right thing, but I was really weak, and I, had, I carried a lot of baggage into that you know, Christian walk with the Lord. But when Shane was born, my life took a different trajectory, and I got serious with God. And I've told people over the years that there were a couple of, as close as I've ever gotten to an audible voice in my walk with the Lord, where I felt like the Lord was saying, I want to use you, but I want you to decide if you're going to waffle anymore or if you're going to actually give yourself fully to me. And I had a couple of poignant, I would call them fork in the road moments. I would even admit to you, one of them came when I was at a party in Newport Beach and some ungodly things were going on at that party. And I knew that that wasn't who I was anymore. And I walked away. I had no car. I had gone with friends. And I couldn't stay there. And I, and I left. And I was walking around Newport Beach by myself with no vehicle. Because I just couldn't stay in that environment anymore. Um, so I will just say that from this text, the turning point, maybe you've had a turning point in your life, maybe you have one ahead of you, I don't know, was the birth of Methuselah. 
then Enoch walked with God when Methuselah was born. Now, there's a little bit of debate about the name Methuselah and the meaning of the name, but many scholars believe uh, that his name means something like this, his death shall bring it. In fact, the word Methuselah, the, the beginning of the word, muth is the Hebrew word for death. His death shall bring it. The question is, bring what? The answer, you've probably heard this before, is the flood. There are uh, ancient writers, unbiblical, uh, I should say unbiblical, but non-biblical sources that say Enoch was the recipient of prophecy and that one of those prophecies may well have been that in the year that Methuselah dies, the flood of God's judgment will come. So there could be two reasons why Methuselah's birth changed the trajectory of Enoch's life or walk, if you will. One, the birth of a son or a child is very significant, of course. Two, it may well be that Enoch learned that this boy's life span would then determine the time that the flood of judgment, and I'm talking about Noah's flood now, because in the very next chapter, we're going to learn about Noah, Genesis chapter 6, right? So can you imagine raising Methuselah? He has a little cough. <coughs> oh, no! <laughs> get him orange juice. Get him vitamin C. Can you imagine someone tells you in the neighborhood, Methuselah is playing in the tree. No! <laughs> His death shall bring it. <laughs> you don't want anything to happen to this kid. I'd build like a bubble around him, right? Well, this is what was going on in the life of Enoch. The chronology of Genesis 5 places the flood as occurring the year Methuselah died. In one well-known strand of Jewish and Christian tradition, Enoch appears as the recipient, quoting another author, of special revelations about the spirit world and the ages to come. In this role, he appears once in the New Testament when Jude, verse 14, quotes the prophecy of Enoch, the seventh from Adam, about the coming of the Lord with his holy myriads to execute judgment on the ungodly. That's a quote from 1 Enoch 1.9, which is not a book in the canon of Scripture, but it is quoted, or that prophecy is quoted, in the book of Jude, verse 14. There's only one chapter in the book of Jude. And so there was some insight given to Enoch about this coming flood. And Enoch was apparently told that as long as Methuselah lived, the flood would be stayed. Now, would that motivate your walk with the Lord if you knew that the flood of judgment was coming when that child of yours passed away? Would you be a little bit more motivated to walk with the Lord? You know, a lot of people in the church talk about the second coming and the rapture of the church, but I'm not sure it's making the church much holier. What do you think? Now, we, we are called to live in the light of the second coming, and many, many generations have thought that they were the last generations, generation. And I can tell you, there's different views on eschatology, and only God knows really who's right. But the return of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to happen in one generation, and Enoch kind of prefigures that. In what way? Enoch experienced an Old Testament rapture. And this is what the commentary in the book of Hebrews tells us 
with a little bit more detail, if you turn back to Hebrews 11, we have a repetition of Enoch being taken up. And by the way, Methuselah lived uh, the longest lifespan recorded in the Bible. Yet, Methuselah, if you want a little trivia, died before his father. Methuselah lived the longest lifespan in the Bible and yet died before his father. How? Because Enoch didn't die. <laughs> he was what? Taken up. Let's look at Hebrews 11.5 one more time and we can see by faith Enoch was taken up. Notice it's specific now that he should not see death, so he didn't die. He was not found, people apparently looking for him, because God took him up. He obtained a witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. Now you say, what does taken up mean? Well, the Greek word means to be transported or transferred. It is the idea of being taken up alive, uh, the idea of a rapture. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. 1 Corinthians 15, you can write down 51 through 58. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trump will sound, and what will happen? We will be changed. And this mortal, that's what we are. We have a lifespan. We're a mortal. We'll put on immortality, right? The perishable will become imperishable. And then will come to pass the saying, death is swallowed up in victory. Now, Enoch is a foretaste of the rapture. And there's absolutely no doubt that Enoch doesn't die because the Bible is explicit that Enoch was taken up or taken out. God essentially said, come up here. Now, for some of us, we look at things like this and we're like, wow, really? This almost seems like a fanciful like movie kind of thing. But God says there's a generation coming, a rapture generation that will not see death. There's one generation that will not die. They will go from mortal to immortal. And the, the language in 1 Corinthians 15 is like up in the blink of an eye. It's, it's like a microsecond. Bam! It's going to be from mortal to immortal, from perishable to imperishable, from mortal to glorious body. At the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what the Bible teaches. The rapture, and remember, the rapture does not precede the resurrection. So you're going to have the resurrection and the rapture tied together. We will not precede those who have fallen asleep. This is 1 Thessalonians 4. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we will always be with the Lord. Now, if you believe Genesis 1-1, that God spoke the universe into existence, if you believe in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you should have no problem believing in a rapture. Do you believe that God is going to raise your uh, mortal body one day, should you die before the Lord comes? Do you believe that you're going to be resurrected? I hope you do. I hope you believe in the resurrection, because Paul says, if there is no resurrection, we should be the most pitied people on the planet. Amen? 
Now, I know some of these things seem supernatural. That's because they are. Because we are dealing with a supernatural God who gave us a foretaste of the rapture in the life of Enoch. Enoch was walking with the Lord. What does it mean to walk with the Lord? It speaks of a consistent stride. It speaks of leaning in. It speaks of guidance. It speaks how can two walk together unless they be agreed. Galatians 5, 17 and 25. Walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Keep in step with the Spirit. Lean into Him. Walk with Him. Let the shepherd, the good shepherd, guide your steps. Amen? That's what Enoch did. In a generation where pre-flood, remember the world got worse and worse and worse, and Enoch saw probably a good amount of that too, because it didn't happen overnight. We're going to learn in Noah's time, the thoughts and intents of every heart was only evil continually. I look at the world today, and it's as bad as I can ever remember it, but it's not as bad as it was for these guys, because Noah stood pretty much alone. Only eight people got on the ark, brethren. You think it's bad? It ain't so bad when you think about only eight and the rest were deluged in a worldwide flood. Amen? So be of good cheer. There's a remnant. (laughs) And I think the writer of Hebrews is trying to say that to his own people as well. So there was a turning point. Enoch was taken up. He was pleasing to God. He walked with God. Are you walking with God? You say, well, what does that mean, Pastor Michael? How do I walk with God? Well, something determines your direction in your life, doesn't it? When you wake up in the morning, I'm sure you have some goals. I hope you do. What is it that you do every day? What, what, What are the dots that you follow? Well, for many of you, you've decided that first thing when you wake up, you're going to do a devotion. Why do you do a devotion? Because you want to walk with God. Why do you pray first thing in the morning? Because you want to walk with God. Amen? Well, Enoch, he had a turning point. It was the birth of a son. It was probably a prophecy as well. The world was going to be judged. And so Enoch walked with God. Perhaps he had a wake-up call. And many of us could say we had a wake-up call Maybe it was the birth of a child. Maybe it was the death of a loved one. Maybe it was the realization that this world is going to be judged. God has fixed a day when he will judge the world, Acts 17. And he's given evidence of this by raising Jesus Christ from the dead. And so the, one of the main verses that we all know, in light of Enoch's testimony, without faith, it's what? It's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. And you say, well, okay, I I get that. And I want to have more faith. And many of us pray, Lord, increase my faith. You know, help help me to be more consistent in my faith. But you need to know that there's, there's there's a benefit here. And we don't do it for the benefit, but you need to know about the benefit. God is a rewarder of those who seek him. And I think seeking him is really walking with him. So here's, here's the promise. If you seek God, he'll reward you. You know, the, the reward for Abel was an ongoing testimony, and of course, Abel's now in the glory of God. The reward for Enoch was he was taken in the presence of God. Let me just say this to you, too. If Enoch, if there's a long nap that people take upon their, the end of their mortal existence, why would it be better for Enoch to be taken to God 
if he was just going to sleep for thousands of years. You get my point? Enoch was taken up to God. To be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. So put aside all that nonsense that, you know, there's a sleep and all that. No. When you die, you go to be with the Lord if you're in Christ. You see, he's a rewarder. And Noah got rewarded by getting to build a big boat and getting able to, being able to live. <laughs> Amen? You know, experts have said that the, the boat that Noah built has uh, the exact dimensions that you would need for it to be one of the best vessels. And people say, well, yeah, well, we're, you know, I don't know if it was moving at the right speeds and all of that. Oh, he wasn't trying to go anywhere. He was just trying to float. <laughs> it was a worldwide flood, brothers and sisters. And by the way, we have evidence of the worldwide flood, for example, in places like the Grand Canyon. You know the best that the naturalists have is they say a river run, ran uphill for millions of years to create the Grand Canyon. Uh, I don't think so. And the last time I checked, rivers don't run uphill. Amen? You guys out there? Okay, thank you. So we have this blessed assurance that we please God when we exercise faith, and God knows that sometimes we're weak in faith. And God rewards Let's look at the final person for tonight. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen. You can cross-reference Hebrews 11.1, 1, where we have a good definition of faith, the substance of things not yet seen or realized. Noah was warned, and in reverence, that is the idea of he exercised godly fear, or he was in awe of God. In reverence, or in godly fear, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. You see, he was doing it not just for himself, but for his family, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Now, Noah's reverential faith in God is amazing because many scholars believe that the earth only had a mist at this time and it never really rained and the evidence is that Noah lived about 100 miles inland, and so he wasn't near an ocean, which, you know, you could say, okay, if a tsunami happened or something, maybe there'd be a threat of a flood, and that probably all he ever saw was flash floods that might have moved through a wadi or like a little dry riverbed kind of thing when there was water in it. And so God told him, the flood's coming. Build an ark, the flood's coming. And I know we've all seen the movies that, you know, try to depict what it was like. But Noah began to build an ark, and he did it. It was a project by faith. And when you walk with God, God's going to ask you to build some things by faith. Amen? It's been often asked, what ark has God asked you to build? And are you willing to build it even if the whole world mocked you? Because eventually, you know what happened? The ark was built and God shut the door. And everybody out in that world who mocked Noah wished they had a ticket for that particular vessel. And so in reverential awe, in reverence to God, though I'm sure Noah didn't understand most of what he was told to do, and he was definitely in the minority of his generation. He had the eyes of faith 
yet as seeing things not yet seen, perhaps even rain, certainly a worldwide flood would be unprecedented. Noah heard God's word. One writer said, some respected scholars, such as the famous Bishop Westcott, thinks God's word were heard, was God's words were also heard by others. If that is true, it has some radical implications to Noah's time. After thinking for a moment, he obeyed God. All Noah needed was God's word to do what God told him to do. God said it. Noah did it. Is that enough for you? If God's, and Noah didn't have a whole Bible like we got, right? We have, we have the whole scripture, 66 books of the Bible. God said it, Noah did it. Would you? Would you obey God with this long project? Evidence is it took him 120 years to build the ark. That's a long building project. And that's a lot of time to be mocked. But he was motivated by reverential fear, which was expressed in obedience. He was motivated by reverential fear. I want to say it one more time. That expressed itself in obedience because faith will always express itself. But to this one will I look, Isaiah 66, 2, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and he who trembles at my word. And that was Noah. Noah said, you said it, Lord, I'm going to do it. He didn't have a flippant response. He was moved by godly fear. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead. True faith will act. D.L. Moody put it this way, I would not give much for a man's Christianity if he has saved himself and is not willing to try to save others. It seems to me the basest ingratitude if we do not reach out the hand to others who are down in the same pit from which we were delivered. I was listening to Alistair Begg and he was preaching about Jesus and Jesus crossing all these boundaries and touching a leper and you know, a, a forgiving a paralytic and going over to the Gadarenes and delivering demoniacs and quieting the sea and calling Matthew the tax collector, the hated tax collector. And he said that Jesus built his church from the devil's landfill. And you look at the early church and they were outcasts and people hated Matthew and you don't touch a leper and those demoniacs, nobody bothers with him anymore. And what does Jesus do? He extends the hand of mercy. It is mercy that 120 years went by before God brought the flood, amen? That's the patience of God, which Second Peter tells us that's why it took so long because God doesn't want anybody to perish but all to come to repentance. Now, we can sit here all day long and curse the darkness if we want to or we can build a lighthouse. We can worry so much about people that are gonna laugh at us because we're believers or we can decide that we're gonna build something in our lifetime by faith for God, amen? You only got a small window, brethren. And lifespans, of course, are not as long as they were back in the day. The ark is a picture of the challenges to our faith that we face in life. John MacArthur writes these words. My father used to tell the story of a man who walked up and down the sidewalks wearing a sandwich board with I am a fool for Christ painted on the front. On the back was painted, 
whose fool are you? Close quote. We can look at our world and we can say, well, yeah, there's all these people who say this and that. Isn't it interesting that the Christian faith gets so much persecution? Do you ever wonder why? Do you ever wonder why both barrels are always pointed at the Bible and Jesus Christ? Does it tell you anything about the veracity of your faith? Does it tell you anything that the world's response to the preaching of the gospel is what it is? It should be another layer of conviction of the truth of the gospel. And so Noah was a preacher of righteousness and he preached and he hammered and he preached and he hammered and he preached and he hammered and he was a preacher of righteousness. And do you know how many people got on the ark? Eight. Eight people got on the ark. Can you imagine that? We know that the worldwide population had to be pretty significant at that time. And only eight people turned to the Lord. And the ark becomes a picture of a traveling uh, boat of salvation. See, God, he instructed Noah to build the ark to save him. Every tap of Noah's hammer was part of his preaching of righteousness to that generation, says Ironside. In every generation, says Brown, Christian obedience is a powerful evangelistic tool. You know, people mock, but they go home at night and they think about who you are and what you've said, what you've stood for at work, or in that conversation where everybody's, you know, mocking the Christian God or the Christian faith, and then they go home at night. And you know what might revolve in some of their heads? Who you are and what you stand for. And that they know inside their conscience and through revelation that there's a God. And so Noah hammered away, and he built an ark in holy fear, and it saved his family. What do you think it felt like when the door was shut and the flood came and Noah looked at what he had created and analyzed his faith in God? Do you think he was grateful? <laughs> I'd say so. Do you think he was grateful that he obeyed God instead of man? Noah's name, by the way, means rest and Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord and Noah is certainly a picture of a man standing almost solitary against his generation. The ancient Sibylline oracles imagine this passionate address from his lips as he preached. Faithless men maddened by passion, don't forget the great things that God has done. For the immortal, all-provident Savior knows all things, and he has commanded me to be a messenger to you, lest you be destroyed by your madness. Sober yourselves, cease from your evil practices and from murderous violence. You know, the main thing going on in the earth uh, during that time, the main expression of the rebellion was violence. There was violence in the earth everywhere. You ever watched a news report? In the last couple of days, you've seen some of the violent beatings that people are giving. Did you see the Marines that got uh, beat up by all those teenagers in, uh, what was it, in San Clemente? What was that about? Pe people just singling somebody out. Uh, there was a, a, a rash of these things where uh, people were walking by elderly people and slugging them in the face and sometimes seriously injuring or even perhaps killing the, those people. And for what? And you say, what has happened to the heart of this world that we can get to this point? 
Genesis 6, 5 says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, that every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. You know, this language of Genesis 6, 5 means that man could listen to a lot of things and twist it in a uh, immoral way. He could hear something and he was so perverted. Every thought became a perversion. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man in the earth and he was grieved. It pained God's heart that man had turned so far away. And so the flood came and Noah took his stand and he preached and God's patience kept waiting and you could call this the sermon of the ark. Turn over to 2 Peter chapter 3, and we're winding down here. 2 Peter 3, it's to your right, towards the latter half, or the last part of the New Testament. 2 Peter 3. <clears throat> Actually, go back to chapter 2. Let me just share a couple key verses. 2 Peter 2, 4 and 5 puts it this way. If God did not spare angels when they sinned, 2 Peter 2, 4, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who live ungodly lives thereafter, if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. Skip down to verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Turn to the next chapter, 2 Peter 3. Look at verse 3. Know this first of all, 2 Peter 3, 3, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking following after their lusts. What will they say? They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep and, and all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. When they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Look, if the, I don't care what the secular scientists tell you, the Bible tells us there was a worldwide flood. It was flooded with water. But the present heavens and earth, by his word, are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but what? but for all to come to repentance. Jesus did say that in the last days, it would be like the days of Noah. And I don't know everything that that means. We have some language about marrying and giving in marriage and all, all of that stuff, but it does seem like the world will be about business as usual prior to this final judgment, if you will. And I don't know all that that means in terms of what the world will look like, but I will say this. Even, even when we look at the world, and this came up in our prayer meeting, and Lori, you said it, had the Lord come back in the last 10 years, you would not be in the kingdom of God. And so sometimes we look at the world and we're like, oh, Lord Jesus, Maranatha, just come. 
bring the judgment, O Lord, because I know I'm good. I know I'm, I'm going up, <laughs> right? That, that's, that's good that you're confident, but it's a little selfish, right? Because what's our heart? Our heart should be God's heart, and God's heart is that not any perish, but what? All come to repentance. So look, as long as we're here, we have a couple things we can do. One, let's live a life pleasing to God. Two, let's try to preach the message, not just by what we say, but the arcs that God has us building by faith. Amen? And let's do our best to be grateful for every day that the Lord gives us and to walk by faith and not by sight. Father, thank you for this timely word. We look at our world and we do see a lot of chaos around us, but we do know there's a remnant and they're here tonight and some of them are watching. And Lord, thank you for this timely word in the book of Hebrews because we need it. We need endurance. We need faith. Lord, as... <coughs> We said I'd preach till my voice gives out. It just happened. Good night. <laughs>